Random Ransomware News Episode 12 Harvard Business Review writes Could ransomware attacks ultimately benefit consumers? In early 2017, a data breach at the credit reporting agency Equifax resulted in the exposure of the private records of more than 40% of the American public. The breach occurred after Equifax neglected to patch a known vulnerability in their system, and it allowed hackers to access social security numbers, driver's licenses, addresses, dates of birth, financial records, and more. Equifax eventually reached a settlement with the United States Federal Trade Commission in 2019. But, as is so often the case with big data breaches, the settlement inflicted little real pain on the company. Individual consumers, meanwhile, paid a big price for the company's inadequate security. Their personal information was irreversibly exposed and disseminated. In economics, this kind of situation is known as externality, where an inaction by one party hurts another party but that second party has no recourse. Regulators have often attempted to address this externality and lessen the burden it places on consumers, but they've had only limited success, largely because companies have seemed happy to settle cases after the fact if that means they don't have to make significant upfront investments in improved security. But meaningful changes are likely to come soon, and in ways that will benefit consumers in the long term. That's because the leaders of companies that store valuable private information are being forced to defend their companies against the growing threat of ransomware attacks. Ransomware attacks, launched by hackers who use malicious software to seize and block access to company computer systems until a lot of money is paid for their release, have been in the news a lot lately. In the past year alone, ransomware attackers collected nearly $350 million from such companies as Casisa, the Colonial Pipeline Microsoft Exchange, and JBS USA, a figure that represents a threefold increase from 2019. What explains the increase? Some important factors include the increased use of remote networks and systems during the COVID-19 lockdown, and recent growth in the cryptocurrency sphere, which has made it easier for hackers to extract ransoms. That said, it's worth noting that ransomware attacks are no different from the typical security attacks that we've been reading about for years. There's nothing novel about the technology they rely on. What is novel, though, is that they're attacking companies rather than consumers, and that's changing the economics of data security. In a traditional data breach, such as the one suffered by Equifax, companies only suffer indirectly from the harms caused by their inadequate attention to security. That surely explains why, according to data from Experian, 35% of companies have not updated their security plans since they were first put in place. IBM has estimated that the AV. average cost of a data breach in the United States is $8.64 million, a cost that is often hard for companies to recognize or account for. A breach may lead to a tarnished reputation and cause a company to lose some business, but those problems tend to be temporary, and the overall cost of such a breach will almost surely be too diffuse for management to make it a key area of focus. Ultimately, it's a company's customers who suffer the most from a traditional breach because they're the ones whose information gets exposed. Ransomware attacks have changed the nature of the game by attacking companies rather than consumers. This change, which forces companies to pay a steep and direct price for lax security, means that managers at all sorts of companies are going to have to focus in a newly serious way on improving cybersecurity and protecting their networks. If you're a senior leader at a company that collects and uses customer data, here are a few basic steps you should take to make sure your company is protected against both ransomware attacks and traditional data breaches. Some of these steps are simple and inexpensive, and others are more involved and expensive but they're all the right thing to do, and they'll benefit not only you, but also your customers. 
Provide continuous training and reminders to employees about the threat of phishing attacks. Phishing has been around for a long time, of course, but it's no longer primarily just a nuisance. Attackers are getting serious, and a lot of money is now at stake. Firms have to ensure that their employees understand the dangers and know how to recognize the warning signs. In-house phishing simulations, in which IT sends realistic-looking phishing emails to employees and then monitors their responses, can be very helpful because they train employees to be vigilant, help IT understand system vulnerabilities, and allow firms to think in a targeted way about improving their cybersecurity. Allow employees only to download apps and software and to use programs that are required for work. Employees often don't like this because it's so convenient to be able to use work devices for personal purposes, but firms and IT departments need to tighten up their controls on this front. Most have been too lax about this for years. It's also important for managers to take the time to explain the need for this policy to everybody. Many third-party tools are available that can be installed on company computers and allow administrators to control which applications employees can install. Make it a priority to patch vulnerabilities and keep systems up to date. Hackers can only execute ransomware attacks if they can get in your network. So make that as hard as possible by applying patches as quickly and as effectively as you can and by updating systems as soon as new versions become available. Patch management has always been part of IT services, but in the face of new dangers, firms need to make it a higher priority. Back up your firm's data. If potential attackers know you have the ability to recover your information, then you become a much less promising target for a ransomware attack. Even if you can't back up all of your data, you can reduce the chance of attack by signaling that you have much of your information backed up. This can be an expensive and time-consuming job. CIOs have to carefully evaluate what data to back up, how frequently, what type of media to use for backup, and the cost to restore it if and when a ransomware attack takes place. None of these practices is new, but many firms, assuming that the costs outweigh the benefits, have yet to adopt them. But with the threat of costly ransomware attacks rising rapidly, the time to get serious has arrived. VentureBeat writes how data-driven patch management can defeat ransomware. Ransomware attacks are increasing because patch management techniques lack contextual intelligence and historical data needed to model threats based on previous breach attempts. As a result, CIOs, CISOs, and the teams they lead need a more data-driven approach to patch management that can deliver adaptive intelligence reliably at scale. Ivanti's acquisition of RiskSense, announced today, highlights the new efforts to close the data-driven gap in patch management. Ransomware attempts continue to accelerate this year with the attacks on Colonial Pipeline Cassia and JBS Meat Packing signaling bad actors' intentions to go after large-scale infrastructure for cash. The Institute for Security and Technology found that the number of victims paying ransom increased more than 300% from 2019 to 2020. According to its Internet Crime Report, the FBI received nearly 2,500 ransomware complaints in 2020, up about 20% from 2019. In addition, the collective cost of the ransomware attacks reported to the Bureau in 2020 amounted to roughly $29.1 million, up more than 200% from just $8.9 million the year before. The White House recently released a memo encouraging organizations to use a risk-based assessment strategy to drive patch management and bolster cybersecurity against ransomware attacks. More ransomware fuels more attempts. Ransomware attacks aimed at soft targets are increasing because legacy security infrastructures aren't designed to protect against current ransomware threats and the lucrative value of the data they store. Hospitals and healthcare providers' extensive databases of personal health information, PHI records are bestsellers on the dark web, 
with Experian noting they can sell for up to $1,000 each. Ransomware attackers concentrating on city and state utilities, gas pipelines, and meatpacking plants are after the millions of dollars in insurance payments their victims have shown a willingness to pay. According to John Kearns, an executive managing director at Insurance Brokerage, Beecher Carlson, a division of Brown & Brown ransomware claims have increased by upward of 300% I. And the past year, victimized organizations paying ransom and having insurance cover the losses make ransomware one of the most lucrative cybercrimes for online criminals. Insurance companies that sell cyber insurance are considering limiting their liability to ransomware attacks by writing coverage out of their policies. French insurance giant AXA is one of the first announcing that starting in May, it would stop reimbursing ransomware payments in France after French officials raised concerns that the payments were encouraging more crime. There's an urgent need for a more data-driven approach to protecting against ransomware attacks. Fording ransomware with better data. Patterns emerging from this year's growing number of ransomware attacks show organizations rely on an inventory-based approach to patch management and aren't systematic in managing cybersecurity hygiene. As a result, organizations often lack visibility into risks and cannot prioritize which endpoints systems, cloud platforms, and networks have the greatest vulnerability. All ransomware attack victims share the common trait of having limited contextual intelligence of the multiple ransomware attempts completed before their companies are compromised. Lacking the basic cybersecurity hygiene of multi-factor authentication, MFA across all accounts, and increasing the frequency and depth of vulnerability scans are two of many actions organizations can take to improve cybersecurity hygiene. Inventory-based approaches also lead to conflicting agents on endpoints. Conflicting layers of security on an endpoint are proving to be just as open to ransomware attacks as leaving the endpoint exposed completely. Absolute Software's 2021 Endpoint Risk Report finds that the greater the endpoint complexity, the more unmanageable an entire network becomes regarding lack of insights, control, and reliable protection. Automating patch management with bots is a start. Bots can identify which endpoints need updates and their probable risk levels, making the most current and historical data to identify the specific patch updates and sequence of builds a given endpoint device needs. Another advantage of taking a more bot-based approach to patch management is how it can autonomously scale across all endpoints and networks of an organization. Bots can scan all endpoints, determine the ones most at risk, and define unique patch update procedures or steps for each, based on IT and cybersecurity technicians programming their expertise into the system. Instead of relying on a comprehensive, inventory-based approach to patch management that is rarely finished IT and security teams need to fully automate patch management, taking this approach offloads help desk volumes, saves valuable IT and security team time, and reduces vulnerability remediation service level agreement, SLAW metrics. Using bots to automate patch management by identifying and prioritizing threats and risks is fascinating t. O track with CrowdStrike Ivanti and Microsoft being the leading vendors in this area. Improving bots' predictive accuracy is the next step. Bot-based approaches to patch management are becoming more effective in how they interpret and act on historical data. Bots have improved their patching accuracy by continually adopting and mastering the use of predictive analytics techniques. The more historical data bots have to fine-tune predictive analytics with, the more accurate they become at risk-based vulnerability management and prioritization. Improving predictive analytics accuracy is also the cornerstone of moving patch management out of the inventory-intensive era it's stuck in today to a more adaptive, contextually intelligent one capable of thwarting ransomware threats. The future of ransomware detection and eradication is data-driven.
The sooner the bot management providers can get there, the better the chance to slow the pace of attacks dominating the global cybersecurity landscape. Supervised Machine Learning Algorithms excel at solving complex constraint-based problems. The more representative the data sets they're trained with, the greater their predictive accuracy. There's a gap between what patch management vendors have and the data they need to improve predictive accuracy. Look for private equity and venture capital firms to find new ways to close the data-driven gap in patch management. Ivanti acquires RiskSense. That's what makes Ivanti's acquisition of RiskSense noteworthy. Ivanti gains the largest and most diverse data set of ransomware attacks available. Along with RiskSense's vulnerability intelligence and vulnerability risk rating, RiskSense's risk rating reflects the future of data-driven patch management as it prioritizes and quantifies adversarial risk based on factors such as threat intelligence, in-the-wild exploit trends, and security analyst validation. Additionally, 30% of RiskSense customers are already Ivanti customers. As part of the acquisition, Ivanti announced their Ivanti Neurons for Patch Intelligence is now available to customers who also have RiskSense licenses. Ivanti and RiskSense are bringing two powerful data sets together, said Srinivas Makamala, RiskSense CEO. RiskSense has the most robust data on vulnerabilities and exploits, including the ability to map them back to ransomware families that are evolving as ransomware as a service, along with nation-states associated with apt groups, and Ivanti has the most robust data on patches. Together Ivanti and RiskSense will enable customers to take the right action at the right time and effectively defend against ransomware, which is the biggest security threat today. Microsoft's accelerating acquisitions this year in cybersecurity reflect how ransomware has become a top priority for the company. Microsoft announced its acquisition of RiskIQ on July 12th. RiskIQ services and solutions will join Microsoft's suite of cloud-native Securate. Why products, including Microsoft 365 Defender, Microsoft Azure Defender, and Microsoft Azure Sentinel. What's ahead for ransomware protection? Organizations need to get beyond the inventory-intensive era of patch management and adopt more contextually intelligent, adaptive approaches that rely on bot management at scale. In addition, Patch management needs to be more data-driven to stop the increasing sophistication and volume of attacks. Even if insurance providers write ransomware coverage out of contracts, the cost of ransomware attacks on organizations' productivity and financial health long-term is alarming. Instead, there needs to be a more data-driven approach to patch management and ransomware deterrence. In the past two months, Microsoft acquired two cybersecurity companies, and Ivanti acquiring RiskSense today reflects how vendors are addressing the challenge of containing ransomware with better data to model against and thwart attacks. Insurance Journal writes Insurance broker Gallagher sued over ransomware attack. Insurance and benefits broker Arthur J. Gallagher is the target of a proposed class action lawsuit over a ransomware attack it suffered in 2020. The plaintiffs allege that Gallagher failed to follow federal and state government and industry standards to protect their personal information from hackers and failed to adequately notify or help individuals whose information was stolen. The plaintiffs claim that they customers and other employees of Gallagher have suffered injuries, incurred costs, and face the prospect of present and imminent lifetime risk of identity theft. The plaintiffs claim that criminals have already used the stolen personal data to attempt to steal certain identities. The lead plaintiffs are two former employees of Gallagher, Jason Myers of California, and John Parsons of Louisiana. They seek unspecified damages and implementation by Gallagher of a host of compensatory and security measures. Arthur J. Gallagher, a large Illinois-based insurance and benefits broker, declined to comment on the lawsuit. The suit also names Gallagher third-party administrator, K. 
Gallagher Bassett Services. The suit claims that hackers obtained personally identifiable information of thousands of Gallagher's customers, potential customers, employees and other consumers, including social security numbers, tax identification numbers, driver's licenses, passports, dates of birth, usernames and passwords, employee identification numbers, financial account information, credit card information, electronic signatures, and medical records. The alleged injuries include out-of-pocket expenses associated with the identity theft, tax fraud, or unauthorized use of their information and increased risk because their information remains available on the dark web for individuals to access and abuse. Gallagher detected the ransomware attack on or about September 26, 2020. It took its global systems offline and lawn. Chet an investigation. According to the complaint, Gallagher informed certain media outlets of the ransomware attack as early as September 29, 2020, but did not take any measures to notify affected individuals until on or about June 30, 2021. The plaintiffs contend that those who saw the September 2020 media reports on the subject but who did not receive any notice of a data breach likely concluded that their data was not impacted and therefore would not have known of the need to take action to protect themselves. Right double quotation mark. According to the suit, Gallagher has offered 24 months of identity monitoring services, which the plaintiffs claim is wholly inadequate. In addition to seeking compensatory statutory, nominal and punitive damages, legal costs, and credit monitoring, the suit asks the court to order Gallagher to have regular third-party tests of its network security, improve training of its security personnel, and purchase or provide funds for credit monitoring services for its customers. The suit is Myers v. Arthur J. Gallagher. It was filed in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Illinois. Federal News Network writes when ransomware attacks U.S. infrastructure, it's tricky to know when to return fire. With ransomware from Russia threatening U.S. critical infrastructure, the question heard more. And more is should the U.S. Cyber Command shoot back? Jason Healy says yes, but only under certain carefully defined conditions. He is a senior research scholar at Columbia University School for International and Public Affairs, and he spoke to Federal Drive with Tom Temin for more insight. Interview transcript. Tom Temin, Mr. Healy, good to have you on. Jason Healy, hey, thanks, Tom. Tom Temin now. You have written, first of all, your article in Lawfare, which is how we found you on this topic, mentions that Trickwood is back, and that what happened last fall involved both Cyber Command and the commercial sector responding to the same thing. Review for us what happened, and why that's kind of the dilemma that country faces. Jason Healy, right? So Trickwood was a reasonably prevalent bit of software, and what Cyber Command said was, hey, we're coming up on the U.S. elections, and the Trickwood operators are associated with Russia and we don't want anything happening over the 2020 elections. So in October, September, or October, they said, we'll do a disruption. We'll use our military cyber power for the federal listeners to your show, right? Using Title 10, military authorities, to go out and disrupt what's basically a purely criminal operation. And they were doing that at the same time, actually just delivered after. Microsoft was themselves going after TrickBit. And so what I was trying to do in the piece was setting up, all right? Seems like it's a good idea. I think we can get behind that, but do we really need the military, using military power, to go after the same targets that are already being taken, down by others? Tom Temin, and what is the methodology that Microsoft uses? Because they do this regularly, and they have a program of taking down some of these botnets, but they don't well what do they do? Jason Healy laughing right, they use the courts to a substantial degree, I mean at the end, it's technology right? They're going in. 
and they're taking over domains, and things like that, but they do it through the courts, and going in and saying, hey, these operators are misusing Microsoft brands and technologies, and they get the courts to nod to that, and often if not, usually with the Department of Justice involved, and they've been at this for a decade, so this is the main way that you see these botnet takedowns, not always with Microsoft, but in this way, with the private sector in the lead and going through the courts, that's obviously very different from Cyber Command, which is going in and using technical tools and not using the courts at all. Tom Temin, so Microsoft then doesn't zap them with a counterattack and actually do cyber damage as the Cyber Command is capable of doing. Jason Healy, absolutely not. It's not hackback, right? In the way that we might think about, it's active defense, it's persistent engagement. To use the military term, it's just going about it in a different way. Tom Temin, and so if you look at some of the more recent attacks, and we'll use the famous case of the pipeline, which the pipeline wasn't bombed, but the cyber system of the operator was bombed, which scared them into thinking that they could take down the pipeline, and therefore they shut down the pipeline before that could happen, paid the ransomware. The result was some short-lived, but pretty tough economic dislocation for parts of the country. Does that elevate it to something that would require a military response, do you think? I guess I could make the imperfect analogy. Suppose a nation cut the pipeline and did some kind of physical harm in that manner. Jason Healy is a great example because it started as a purely criminal enterprise, but it had clear national security implications, and we can't always know beforehand which ransomware attacks are going to lead to those high-end national security implications where you now say, all right, maybe we would need the military to do so. Now that's not our fault, right? That's on behalf of the adversaries. So the issue comes down to is okay. We can't have the military, or we don't think especially in a democracy like ours, that we want the military to be getting involved in everything, especially criminal things that are homeland security right. If we're always turning to the military, they're never going to be resourced for it, and we have these constitutional issues about it, right? I mean, we're about a year from when we had the 82nd Airborne almost on the streets of Washington, D.C., right? We as an American say, no, the military should only be reserved for some things. So our issue is okay, well then, under what circumstances? What are the criteria that it is smartest for us to reserve the military for those situations? Tom Temin, we're speaking with Jason Healy, senior research scholar at Columbia University's School for International and Public Affairs, and if you were to shoot back in the case of the pipeline, you would still have the issue. Yes, this could be a critical danger to society, but you're shooting in a cyber sense, not at another military, but at some group that's operating out of a country, which we can't attribute to the Russian government. So I imagine that's another kind of offset issue to deal with. Jason Healy, absolutely. It bothers me a little bit less, because I don't care as much about attribution, which implies, who are the people involved? What's the group involved versus national responsibility? There's no doubt that Putin is responsible for this, right? It might not be people that are getting a Russian government paycheck, or have a Russian government ID that are doing this, but we have no doubt that they've had sanctuary in the ability to do this. So I've got no problem in saying we are going to hold the Russian government and Vladimir Putin responsible for this, and just proceed from that point. Tom Temin, all right. So you have laid out a set of criteria under which Cyber Command should counter-hack and tell us what those are? Jason Healy, yeah. So I said, boy, it needs to be imminent, right? Something important has to be coming up. In the case of Trickbutt, that was the U.S. elections, where they said, aha, boy, we need to act quickly to make sure. It could also be, for example, if we have intelligence that the malicious software, as a group, is about to shift into doing something more dangerous. Severity. We shouldn't be doing this for something minor, 
We should only be doing it for something major. Trickbit was relatively large in this. Obviously it should have an overseas focus, right? If it's in the United States, then that's not something that we should really be thinking about the United States. Adversary. I said, look for the military to be getting involved. It should be a criminal group or malware that's tied to China, Russia, North Korea, or Iran, right? Using the military for a criminal group or malware that's from Brazil strikes me as a mismatch of what we're trying to get done here. And last, the military is a lastish resort, right? We shouldn't leave it for the last resort, because by then it might be too late. We don't want to game this too much. But if someone's already doing it in the case of Microsoft, then maybe we don't need the military to be getting involved against a criminal group. Now, and I'll just say there's a strong and a weak version of this. The strong is, these are all legal tests, and you need all of them. The weak is, well, these are the kinds of things that it should be involved with, and as long as it's along these lines, that's probably okay. Tom Temin, and who would make the decision here? Because you've got a chain of command. And when there was the taking out of bin Laden, that went all the way to the Oval Office, that decision. In this case, these are words that make sense for criteria, but the devil is in the details, imminent, five minutes from now, an hour from now, severity, a million people affected, and so on. You get my point. Jason Healy, yeah, absolutely. Ideally, this would be the NSC through a modification of the documents, which say how we're going to do these. Under Obama, it had been PPD-20 under Trump. It had been a document called NSPM-13. I don't know if the Biden White House is updating that document with new guidance, but these kind of things could be built in there. Also, it could just be used locally within U.S. Cyber Command and their intra-agency discussions with Justice and DHS on who's going to do what. Tom Temin, all right. So to summarize, this should be something that is embodied in a policy so that it would seem incumbent upon the Biden White House at this point, if they agree, is to have a PPD-20 or an NSPM-13. My hunch is they'll resurrect PPD-20 laughing from the Obama administration, but there needs to be some document that controls all of this. Jason Healy, right? And we might dance around this. It strikes me like the drug war, right? Where we decided that in the 80s, where the military was going to get involved because there was clear and present danger. And we might say, all right, we'll have a joint FBI-US Cyber Command unit that's going to bring you the authorities and the capabilities of both. You might even at private sector, right? Maybe even Microsoft and others that have been involved in these takedowns have a seat at that table. And all three of them say, what are we going to do about this? And who's got the best capabilities and authorities? That kind of thing seems like a better way of doing this than Cyber Command off on its own. Tom Temin Jason Healy is senior research scholar at Columbia University's School for International and Public Affairs and also past president of the Cyber Conflict Studies Association. Thanks so much for joining me. Jason Healy. Thanks, Tom. MSS Peeler writes, should Congress ban U.S. companies from paying ransomware hackers? Should Congress ban U.S. companies from paying hackers who launch ransomware attacks and demand extortion payments in return for decryption keys? Answer. Probably not or at least not yet. Why not? The potential risk for cyber blackmail by data hijackers is too great. What should Congress legislate? The answer increasingly appears to involve incident reporting to law enforcement. Keep in mind that any legislation involving cyber incident disclosures could influence how MSSPs, MSPs, and MDR manage detection and response, service providers work and communicate with their customers and the government. With that said, Here's what's going on right now in Congress on key issues. FBI cyber specialist banning ransomware payments is a bad idea. 
A top Federal Bureau of Investigation, FBI, cyber specialist has told the Senate Judiciary Committee that legislation to ban U.S. companies from shoveling what often amounts to millions of dollars to cyber extortionists is essentially a bad idea, just not for the reasons that you might think. It's our position that banning ransom payments is not the road to go down, Brian Vondren, the assistant director of the FBI's cyber division, told panel members via The Hill, doing so will further embolden hackers to threaten victims whose data they've stolen, that if they report the crime it will be sold on the dark web, he said, that's on top of locking up their systems. Vondren called it a complicated conversation, it's the FBI's position that if we ban ransom payments, now you are putting U.S. companies in a position to face yet another extortion, which is being blackmailed for paying the ransom and not sharing that with authorities, he said. At this point, as much as 35% of incidents go unreported to the agency. Jeremy Sheridan, the assistant director of the U.S. Secret Service's Office of Investigations, told the committee that prohibiting ransomware payments would discourage reporting an event to the FBI. Banning the payments would further push any reporting to law enforcement into obscurity and make it virtually impossible for us to have that relationship, he said. Next up, mandatory incident reporting. Meanwhile, there is relative unanimity among cybersecurity officials that mandatory incident reporting at least for critical infrastructure operations will soon be on the menu. Legislators pushing incident reporting recently received a boost from newly installed cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency, CISA Director Jen Easterly and Chris Inglis, the inaugural White House National Cyber Director. At their nomination hearings, both Easterly and Inglis made it clear that they support imposing minimum reporting standards on critical infrastructure outfits and private companies to notify the federal government of cyber incidents. Virginia Senator Mark Warner D. has called on Congress to enact new legislation that would require private companies to report cyber attacks to the federal government, joining U.S. intelligence leaders who have also pressed congressional lawmakers to require private industry to report security breaches another threat information to the federal government. Recent ransomware attacks victims, U.S. lawmakers take note. The Senate Judiciary Committee's hearing on ransomware follows the latest high-profile hijackings and serves as a keen example of companies coughing up ransom money. In the attack on energy supplier Colonial Pipeline, the company paid nearly $5 million to restore its systems. The federal government recovered some $2.3 million of Colonial's ransom payment. In another incident that infected JBS, a meat processor, the company paid an $11 million ransom to hackers to unlock its network. Cassia, on the other hand, which in early July 2021 was blasted by a ransomware attack on its VSA software attributed to the Russia-lined our evil gang, refused to pay a ransom to obtain a decryptor key and instead procured one on its own. Specific details about how Cassia actually obtained the key remain undisclosed. None of the three victims were required to report the incidents to federal authorities. Still, in a recent report, cyber insurance provider Coalition predicted that government regulation and scrutiny in ransomware events will increase. Expect more regulation and more public frameworks from government institutions worldwide, with new laws that require far greater disclosure of cybersecurity incidents, the company said. FBI's official stance on ransomware payments The FBI's official position on paying ransoms is no way. According to the agency's website, the FBI does not support paying a ransom in response to a ransomware attack. Paying a ransom doesn't guarantee you or your organization will get any data back. It also encourages perpetrators to target more victims and offers an incentive for others to get involved in this type of illegal activity.
In keeping with the agency's stated position in late June, FBI Director Christopher Rory told the U.S. Senate Appropriations Committee that the agency would discourage paying the ransom because it encourages more of these attacks. And frankly, there is no guarantee whatsoever that you are going to get your data back. The goal is to make it harder and more painful for hackers and criminals to do what they are doing, he said. Along those lines, it should be noted that eight in ten organizations hit by a ransomware attack that elected to pay a ransom demand were attacked a second time, often by the same cyber crew. A global study of some one, 300 security professionals surveyed by cybersecurity provider CyberEason found, such as the scourge of ransomware that the long-standing question of whether victims should meet a hijacker's demands one still absent, a definitive answer could take a backseat to Congress banning those payments by law altogether. National security rights inside a ransomware negotiation. This is how us whole Russian hackers shake down companies. $1.1 million. We will never go lower. And this offer is valid for 48 hours. Keep it or leave it. That's the message a small retail business on the east coast of the U.S. received earlier this summer when it realized it was being held up by a Russian-speaking ransomware gang. At first the hackers demanded more than $2 million, an overhead that would have left the victim company reeling. According to transcripts of the negotiations with the ransomware, gang the Daily Beast obtained, it wasn't going to work. Even with the hackers dangling offer that the millions of dollars would be accepted in exchange for unlocking the business systems and a promise to not publish or sell their stolen files. So instead of coughing up the demand right away, the victims started groveling. They pleaded with the hackers, noting they didn't have cybersecurity insurance and couldn't afford the demand. The hacking gang known as Conti appeared to acquiesce slightly and offered a minor discount, but they balked at the victim's next suggestion that they only cough up several hundred thousand dollars. We have reviewed all the documents we have on file, the hackers wrote, arguing that the counteroffer was too low, according to the transcript. The victim ended up opting to pay the updated offer of just over $1 million after verifying they had the correct Bitcoin payment address with the hackers. Much to the company's relief, the hackers quickly sent over the decryptor, the tool that would allow the victims to regain access to their systems, which they'd been locked out of for days. But reassurances the hackers would delete the stolen data and not publish it did not come so quickly. That's when the panic set in. Per our agreement, please provide a copy to all of our data, the negotiators pleaded, before following up a few hours later. Please confirm that you will delete it everywhere and give us proof of deletion. Thanks. Several more pleas were sent to the hacking gang, but they were met with days of silence. In all, the company waited seven days before hearing back. Dave Wong, who worked with the victim in this case to recover from the ransomware attack, told the Daily Beast he thinks the company got nervous as soon as they paid, because the reality set in that the future of their company was in the criminal's hands, and they had no way of knowing if the gang would follow through. A lot of companies are a little bit nervous because they're handing over a million dollars and you're trusting the criminal is going to keep his end of the bargain Wong, a vice president at FireEyes Mandiant, told the Daily Beast. I think that's when the victim in this case got a little bit nervous. The victim, whom the transcript does not identify and Wong declined to identify, ultimately got what it wanted, the decryption tool and some reassurances, although no guarantees their data had been deleted, says Wong. The negotiation offers a rare view into the secretive negotiations ransomware gangs use to hold businesses for ransom and extort them for millions of dollars and just how tricky the negotiation process can be.
On top of balancing concerns that they may be running afoul of U.S. sanctions by paying the hackers, the victims must contend with the reality that even if they cough up millions, they may not get their data back. The hackers might disappear into thin air, and they could be held for ransom by the same hackers again despite assurances their stolen files won't come back to haunt them. The negotiate or surge of panic after paying is not uncommon among ransomware victims, negotiators tell the Daily Beast. Raising the stakes in this case? Conti hackers in particular have been known to stiff their victims after receiving payment. Curtis Minder, the CEO and co-founder of security firm GroupSense, whose team also negotiates with Conti, says the gang is one of the more capricious ones on the block. They're assholes, Minder said. I think the reality is nobody trusts a criminal, Wong told the Daily Beast. But what you're trusting is their greed, and that if an organization like Conti expects people to pay them in the future, they're going to follow through with what they said they're going to do, but it still makes you nervous. Thousands of companies around the world have been grappling with a ransomware attack from a Russian-speaking ransomware gang known as Our Evil this month, just as the Biden administration has been working to get Russia to hold hackers accountable for their ransomware schemes. Multiple companies hit in high-profile ransomware attacks this summer, including Colonial Pipeline and JBS, a major U.S. meat supplier have opted to negotiate with Russian-speaking hackers to get operations back to normal. The Biden administration has kicked off multiple ransomware task forces to try to clamp down on the scourge of ransomware, but in the absence of any concrete solutions, victims are continuing to get hit and negotiate ransoms. To get an inside look at what the status quo is like and what it takes to deal with the gangs in the meantime, the Daily Beast spoke with several negotiators that have been serving as intermediaries between ransomware gangs and their victims to facilitate payments in recent months. The negotiators' persistence in pressing the hackers to follow through on their promises right after payment in this particular case is something Tom Hoffman, whose firm negotiates with ransomware gangs, encounters all too often. But it can be a bad idea, he says. Refraining from sending panicked messages to the hackers is especially important to avoid tipping your hand, especially for victims who are worried the hackers don't know the true value of the data they've stolen, says Hoffman, the senior vice president of intelligence at security firm Flashpoint. In several cases where Hoffman's clients realized the hackers didn't know the true value of the files they stole, Hoffman says his team worked to divert the ransomware gang's attention elsewhere, like on the decryption tool, so the hackers wouldn't think twice about offering discounts. If they actually understood the value of the data, the ransom would have been much higher, Hoffman told the Daily Beast. This was one where you had to play somewhat coy. Even if victims get their ransoms down, feelings of hopelessness can set in after they pay, because there's no guarantee the hackers won't just take the money and run or delete stolen data. But it's simply not possible to have any guarantees with these kinds of hackers, says Minder. There's never going to be any real proof that the hackers have deleted what they say they've deleted, Minder says. Sometimes hackers will send a video that shows them ostensibly deleting all the stolen goods, but they could have fabricated it or stored a copy somewhere else to extort the victim later. Victims also run the risk of gangs going dark as soon as they pay, even when dealing with gangs that have a reputation for following through, warns Hoffman, especially as law enforcement attention to ransomware gangs ramps up, or if the hackers decide they want to rebrand and start fresh with a new name, victims might be left without answers. They'll tell you this is a business and their reputation matters. All of that is absolutely valid up until the point the group no longer exists, Hoffman said. The Russian are evil hackers behind the latest ransomware spree went dark earlier this month but in recent days have appeared to regroup under the name Black Matter, researchers say. 
They also appear to have linked up with other hackers, including Darkside, the hacking group behind the Colonial Pipeline incident. The threat group behind Depel Paymer Ransomware has also appeared to rebrand, just last week. Now the question is what happens with all those groups who did have that stolen information, who are no longer in business, Hoffman warned. Does this information show up in five years, six years, seven years? The uncertainties of paying are only likely to get worse, experts say. In recent months ransomware gangs have been getting savvier with their extortion schemes and breaking into victims' financial records, so that if victims claim they can't afford ransom demands, the gangs can fact-check, according to Minder. In many cases you can't lie, because they have all the information, Minder told the Daily Beast. Wong says he's seen ransomware gangs use this tactic to catch victims in lies when they've suggested they couldn't afford the hackers' ransom demands when in reality they could. They sent a bank statement they had stolen that showed this company had $5 million in the bank, Wong told the Daily Beast, referring to a different ransomware gang negotiation. They're like, you have the money, don't lie. They're getting a lot more sophisticated. The FBI has long advised that it doesn't support victims paying ransom demands, while the Treasury Department has warned victims may violate U.S. sanctions and have to pay the price if the criminals are subject to them. The U.S. government has also counseled victims against paying since it can embolden hackers to continue attacking. But banning payments altogether is not the right move, according to Hoffman. What happens if the business goes under, Hoffman said? How does that benefit society if the business goes under, and now 500 are unemployed because someone wanted to? Take a moral stance against payments. And while some states have been glomming onto the idea that banning payments might be helpful to throttle ransomware gangs' funding, the FBI is warming to the idea that there's some wiggle room here. The FBI's assistant director of the cyber division, Brian Vondren, told lawmakers last week it would be short-sighted to ban payments. He fears the hackers would use it to further punish victims. If we ban ransom payments now, you're putting U.S. companies in a position to face yet another extortion, which is being blackmailed for paying the ransom and not sharing that with authorities, Vondren said in testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee. It's also just not prudent, says Minder. Have you put yourself in the shoes of a small business or a hospital that's going to go out of business or someone's going to die if you don't pay the ransom, Minder said. Anyone who has a strong stance on not paying does not know a victim. For the time being, the grind continues, Minder, and his team just started another Conti case in the last several days. And for now, they're sticking to their guns. Gizmodo writes the situation is very serious ransomware hackers hobble COVID-19 vaccinations in Italy. A series of cyberdacks has disrupted COVID-19 vaccinations in Italy's Lazio region, a large area that encompasses the nation's capital, Rome. The attacks, which appear to have been launched by hackers connected to a ransomware gang, temporarily took down the Lazio government's website over the weekend, while also incapacitating Lazio Cray III, party firm in charge of scheduling and booking vaccination appointments. Data associated with a large public health database was also encrypted, though the government has backups of the data, local outlets have reported. ANSA the nation's leading wire service reports that the cybercriminals infiltrated Lazio Cray's systems as an administrator and were able to deploy a malware that encrypted the data on the system in a Facebook post. The local government admitted that operations relating to vaccinations may be delayed as a result. At the moment we are defending our community from these attacks of a terrorist nature, said Nicholas Ingaretti Lazio's governor at a press conference. The attacks are still taking place. The situation is very serious. Lazio's health manager, Alessio D'Amato, 
added that it was a very powerful hacker attack, very serious. Everything is out. The whole regional CD, the database is under attack. The attacks appear to have interrupted the region's vaccination efforts at a time when the Delta variant, a new, highly transmissible strain of the COVID-19 virus, is spreading across Europe. Italy also just passed a new mandate requiring citizens to show a digital or printed health pass, which proves vaccination in order to access certain recreational activities, such as theaters or indoor dining, making the timing of the whole incident particularly problematic for the region. Throughout the pandemic, hackers have ruthlessly targeted medical institutions, exploiting the public health crisis and using it as leverage against their victims' hospitals, public health websites, and academic researchers have all been attacked. It's particularly disturbing to see such morally unscrupulous tactics targeted at the vaccination process, a process solely designed to save lives, especially for a country as hard hit by COVID as Italy. Construction dive writes who says you can't fight ransomware attacks. They go by cheeky, even beguiling names like Samsam, Waki, WannaCry, and Reften. You know these names better for the untold pain, suffering, and loss they create through ransomware data theft and extortion. What makes this scourge even more harrowing is the way criminals actively focus on construction companies. No wonder many industry leaders ask why us? We're a construction company. What do we have worth stealing? It turns out plenty. First, a quick look at the new normal by the numbers. In six construction companies reported a ransomware attack in the past year. It's believed most assaulted companies don't report it, fearing reputation damage. 4% success rate for construction industry ransomware attacks. 42.5% for other industries. Every 11 seconds, cadence of ransomware assaults, costing business about $20 billion annually according to Cybersecurity Ventures. 220,300. Average construction industry ransomware payment. 5 lost operational days in a typical construction company data breach. If you've experienced an attack, you understand the stakes. It goes beyond a catastrophic ransom demand. It's a terrorizing strike at the heart of your reputation and ability to maintain normal business operations. The viability of all current projects and bids is immediately jeopardized. Existential risk. Even if you're fortunate to have business insurance that helps recoup some or all of the financial loss, you're subject to increased premiums, reduced coverage both, or summary cancellation, one way or the other you pay. I've been with companies where data breach is a life-ending event. They say we can't pay. We can't recover from this. We're done, says Nick Espinoza. Espinoza is a best-selling author, noted TED speaker, cybercrime consultant, and head of Security Fanatics, a global authority on cybersecurity and IT infrastructure defense. He understands why the bad guys prey on construction company data assets. Those crown jewels could include employee information, designs, bid data, profit loss information, banking records, materials pricing, other confidential information. First, let's be clear. Every vertical is under attack. No one is spared. Yet construction is singled out because they tend to be cash-rich and constantly under the gun to meet delivery targets. Construction companies are seen as more vulnerable and W. Ailing to pay explains Espinoza. Outpacing security. There's another reason too. Rapid growth in a booming economy is a double-edged sword. It's great for the bottom line, of course but it can also mean cybersecurity gets left behind as companies accelerate their digital transformation. That leaves it to a typically overworked and understaffed IT department to battle a clever, relentless enemy. Construction companies don't invest enough in cybersecurity. They tend to be a bit behind. It's like hiring a specialty contractor. 
Do you want a drywall contractor to install your HVAC system? The skill set has to match highly talented and resourceful thieves. Cybersecurity is a specialty field that few companies have the internal know-how or time to keep up with, says Espinoza, noting the criminal's sky-high success rate in breaching construction company defenses. New paradigm? Kevin Suhu, Director Construction and Engineering for Ignite, a leading content management company, says the ransomware plague merits the same level of leadership commitment that worker safety commands. Construction projects are full of risk and uncertainty. Traditionally, project drivers were seen as a triad of labor, material, and equipment. For example, the industry has made great advances in safeguarding labor with highly tangible results, Suhu says. How tangible? Dodge Data and Analytics reports 72% of contractors say their safety program positively impacts their industry standing, with 66% asserting safety practices help lift business development. Powerful antidote. The risk posed by ransomware attacks begs the question, isn't it time to treat cybersecurity with fervor and focus as a safety management program? Lacks attention to either one as a potential business crippler or killer. The good news is the industry is starting to make this a regular topic sharing best practices at the national level for notable trade associations like the MCAA and NECA, among others. In fact, the AGCIT conference, one of the few construction events with a huge focus on construction IT, is featuring three separate breakout sessions on cybersecurity over the 2.5-day event. Winning strategy. Espinoza recommends companies insist on free and common-sense practices, like multi-step authentication on sign-in. This simple action often scares off a potential attacker. The hacker figures why bother defeating this obstacle when there are far more accessible targets available. Additionally, Espinoza advises a defensive strategy be formed around a third-party security assessment. That's the right step to better sleep at night, he advises. Another notable step is to partner with a content management company like Ignite, top-ranked for data-centric security by G2, the independent go-to authority on business software. Ignite bakes in security much more stringently than most content management companies, Espinoza reports, in a world marked by cyberthieves' debt, ermine to upend your business, it makes sense to rethink long-held security assumptions, consider implementing best-practice cybersecurity measures that safeguard your data assets from the unthinkable. Security Boulevard writes ransomware attempt volume sets a new record. An article published in ZDNet has cited a report prepared by a cybersecurity firm that says that ransomware attempt volume saw a major rise in the first half of 2021 itself. The report has mentioned that the ransomware attempt volume rose up to an unbelievable figure of 304.7 million inches this period. Out of all the months in the first half of 2021, April and May saw a very high number of attempted ransomware attacks. However, the month of June beat both April and May by recording a ransomware attempt volume of 78.4 million. It is worth noting that the figure has already surpassed the overall number of attempted ransomware attacks of 2020 which was 304.6 million. This also represents a year-on-year -year increase of 151% in the ransomware attempt volume. New Zealand Dr. Wright's remote working putting organizations at risk of ransomware. CERT NZ is urging Kiwi organizations to tighten up the way they enable remote working for staff to avoid a ransomware attack. Government Cybersecurity Agency, CERT NZ says the majority of ransomware attacks occur through poorly configured remote access systems which businesses use to allow staff to access systems from outside the office. While there are a range of these in use, one of the most commonly used is Remote Desktop Protocol, RDP, with over 2,500 identified in New Zealand. RDP has a number of weaknesses, 
which means when it is used over the internet it can be exploited by attackers, and is a leading contributor to the ransomware incidents that CERT NZ receives. It's essential that organizations urgently review their remote access systems and make sure these systems are as secure as they can be. You may need to talk to your IT team or service provider about how to do this, says Michael Shearer, Principal Advisor, Threats and Vulnerabilities at CERT NZ. CERT NZ is partnering with internet service providers to contact organizations that use internet-exposed RDP to provide advice on how they can make remote working more secure. Regardless of what technology organizations use to enable remote working, it's important to keep your system up to date and enable two-factor authentication for logins. As RDP is often exploited by attackers to gain access to an organization's network, CERT NZ recommends organizations consider other options to enable remote working, such as a virtual private network VPN. Good VPN solutions support two-factor authentication, which adds an extra layer of security, and are designed to be used over the internet. More broadly, CERT NZ is concerned about the growing impact ransomware attacks are having on New Zealand. Recent events have brought to light the devastating effects. A ransomware attack can have on an organization. There's been an increasing trend of these types of attacks globally over the past 18 months, and they're only going to continue. CERT NZ has seen an increase in ransomware reports in the second quarter of 2021 April to June, compared to the first quarter of the year, reaching a total of 30 reports, this is the highest number of ransomware reports made to CERT NZ within one quarter. These figures do not paint a complete picture of the extent of ransom attacks in New Zealand. These numbers only reflect what has been reported to us. However, conversations with our industry partners indicate there are a lot more attacks happening. CERT NZ will soon be releasing more guidance for organizations about how to protect themselves against ransomware. Organizations can keep up to date by following CERT NZ on LinkedIn, https colon slash slash www.linkedin.com company CERNs. If your organization has been affected by a ransomware attack, report it to CERT NZ via our online reporting tool at www.cert.govt.nz slash report or our contact center 08800-CERT-NZ. For more information about securing an internet-exposed RDP, refer to the CERT-NZ website, https colon slash slash www.cert.govt.nz slash business slash guide slash securing dash your dash internet dash exposed dash RDP dash server slash CISAGOV writes cyber threats to K-12 remote learning education. He Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, has seen an increase in malicious activity with ransomware attacks against K-12 educational institutions. Malicious cyber actors are targeting school computer systems, slowing access, and rendering the systems inaccessible to basic functions, including remote learning. In some instances, Ransomware actors stole and threatened to leak confidential student data unless institutions paid a ransom. Since March, uninvited users have disrupted live conference classroom settings by verbally harassing students, displaying pornography and violent images, and doxing meeting attendees. For detailed information on these threats and actions to take, visit the Joint Cybersecurity Advisor in this topic, jointly developed by CISA, FBI, and the Multistate Information Sharing and Analysis Center. Ransomware Reference Materials for K-12 School and School District IT Staff Best Practices for School and School District Cybersecurity Managers, System Administrators, and other technical staff to enhance their school and or district security posture during distance and hybrid learning conditions. Webinar, K-12 Education Leaders Guide to Ransomware Prevention, Response, and Recovery Co-hosted by CISA, 
and the National Cybersecurity Alliance, NCSA. This webinar, moderated by Kelvin Coleman, Executive Director, NCSA, features a discussion with Bridget Walsh, CISA Acting Deputy Assistant Director, Stakeholder Engagement, and Ryan Callenber, Executive Vice President, Proofpoint Incorporated. The panel focuses on the evolving K-12 ransomware threat landscape, some common at tech vectors, and resources available to our schools to prevent, respond to, and recover from a ransomware incident. Alert AA20345A, cyber actors target K-12 distance learning education to cause disruptions and steal data. Numerous reports of ransomware attacks against kindergarten through 12th grade K-12 educational institutions continue to be reported to CISA. FBI and the Multistate Information Sharing and Analysis Center, Mies ISAC. According to Mies ISAC data, the percentage of reported ransomware incidents against K-12 schools increased at the beginning of the 2020 school year. In August and September, 57% of ransomware incidents reported to the Mies ISAC involved K-12 schools, compared to 28% of all reported ransomware incidents from January through July. In response to this ransomware threat and other malicious cyber activity, such as data theft and disruption of distance learning CISA, the FBI, and the MS. ESAC published a joint advisory that provides an assessment on recent attempts of malicious cyber actors to target K-12 educational institutions and how to mitigate these cyber attacks. Fact Sheet, Cyber Threats to K-12 Remote Learning Education Secure Video Conferencing for Schools CISA is providing a video conferencing product for school district and campus IT administrators and staff charged with securing their IT networks, as well as end-users such as teachers to help them think through cybersecurity issues. A tip sheet provides guidelines to keep school staff and students safe. Victims of ransomware should report it immediately to CISA at www.us-cert.gov report, a local FBI field office, or Secret Service field office. Ransomware reference materials for parents, teachers, and school administrators. Best practices for non-technical staff as well as parents and teachers to enhance a school security poster during distance and hybrid learning conditions. Webinar, K-12 Education Leaders Guide to Ransomware, Prevention, Response, and Recovery. Co-hosted by CISA and the National Cybersecurity Alliance, NCSA, this webinar, moderated by Kelvin Coleman, Executive Director, NCSA, features a discussion with Bridget Walsh, CISA Acting Deputy Assistant Director, Stakeholder Engagement, and Ryan Callenber, Executive Vice President, Proofpoint Incorporated. The panel focuses on the evolving K-12 ransomware threat landscape, some common attack vectors, and resources available to our schools to prevent, respond to, and recover from a ransomware incident. Secure video conferencing for school. A CISA video conferencing product, including tip sheet, for school district and campus IT administrators and staff charged with securing their IT networks as well as end-users such as teachers to help them think through cybersecurity issues. Cybersecurity in the Classroom The DHS Cybersecurity Education Training Assistance Program setup, equips K-12 teachers with cybersecurity curricula and education tools. This resource includes project-driven curricula, e.g., lesson plans, assessments, programs, e.g., hands-on cybersecurity learning activities for middle school and high school students, and student resources for students' parents and activity leaders looking to enhance students' awareness of STEM, computer science, and cyber topics. CISA's top tips for virtual learning. Stop Think Connect product providing valuable resources and recommendations for students and teachers 
including proactive steps to secure online conferencing and safeguard information, with concrete do's and don'ts to help keep learners safe online. Transition to distance learning creates opportunities for cyber actors to disrupt instruction and steal data, FBI and CISA. This FBI public service announcement, PSA was written with contributions from CISA and raises awareness for parents and caregivers of school-aged children about potential disruptions to schools and compromises of private information as cyber actors exploit remote learning vulnerabilities. The PSA discusses threats from video conference disruptions, social engineering, and phishing, and it provides recommendations and best practices on issues, including at-home cybersecurity and distance learning, online privacy tip sheet, Tip sheet providing helpful information about sharing personal information online to enable you to reduce the risk of becoming a cybercrime victim. Ways to be cyber secure at work. From the top leadership to the newest employee, cybersecurity requires the vigilance of everyone to keep data customers and capital safe and secure. This tip sheet provides simple, easy to accomplish steps to allow organizations to connect with confidence and support a culture of cybersecurity among employees. Identity theft and internet scams. Tips on avoiding the latest internet scams whether you are at home, at school, at work, or on the go. Phishing. Learn more about how phishing attacks use email or malicious websites to infect your machine with malware and viruses in order to collect personal and financial information. Malware tip card. Stop Think Connect resource providing an easy-to-understand backgrounder on all things related to malicious software or malware. Learn to protect yourself from malware which can compromise the integrity of your computer or mobile device. Victims of ransomware should report it immediately to CISA at www.us-cert.gov report, a local FBI field office, or Secret Service field office. Ransomware reference materials for students. Tips and consideration, as well as cybersecurity best practices, to help students stay safe, and to do their part in keeping their school's network secure while learning remotely. Secure video conferencing for school. Assist a video conferencing product, including tip sheet for school district and campus IT administrators and staff charged with securing their IT networks, as well as end users such as teachers to help them think through cybersecurity issues. CISA. S top tips for virtual learning. Stop Think Connect product providing valuable resources and recommendations for students and teachers including proactive steps to secure online conferencing and safeguard information, with concrete do's and don'ts to help keep learners safe online. Online privacy tip sheet. Tip sheet providing helpful information about sharing personal information online to enable you to reduce the risk of becoming a cybercrime victim. Identity theft and internet scams. Tips on avoiding the latest internet scams whether you are at home, at school, at work, or on the go. Phishing. Learn more about how phishing attacks use email or malicious websites to infect your machine with malware and viruses in order to collect personal and financial information. Malware tip card. Stop Think Connect resource providing an easy-to-understand backgrounder on all things related to malicious software or malware. Learn to protect yourself from malware, which can compromise the integrity of your computer or mobile device. Victims of ransomware should report it immediately to CISA at www us-cert.gov slash report a local FBI field office or Secret Service field office. Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta writes, Ransomware to pay or not to pay. Ransomware attacks against high-profile corporate, educational, and governmental entities continue to make the news. What the media often overlook, however, are the continuing attacks against consumers' home networks and devices. Imagine your panic when you turn on your personal computer 
and you get a message demanding $500 in cyber currency or gift cards for your tax banking, investment management, family photo, and other important files that a criminal has encrypted. Do you pay or not? Law enforcement and cybersecurity professionals almost all say no. A March 2021 report Adobe PDF file format offsite link from a cybersecurity firm described a study of 15,000 consumer ransomware attacks in 2020 worldwide. In more than half of these attacks, 56%, the victims paid the ransom, but only 17% of those making payment regained full access to their files. Adults 55 and older were the age group least likely to pay a ransom, 11%, while the 35-44 age group at 65% were most likely to pay. Arguments against payment are threefold. It encourages further attacks because the victim has already shown willingness to pay. It rewards criminal behavior and provides funds for additional attacks. It may not result in 100% recovery of files. Those consumers making a ransomware payment do it because they hope the payment will restore their files faster and they'll soon resume normal use of their computer. As this type of cybersecurity attack against consumers and business continues to increase education about its process and the defenses that should be undertaken are critical, what is the best way to provide that? Let us know what you think.